ultimately, you can't just let out a bunch of geologists with diplomas that know nothing because if the bridges are falling for engineers or geologists can't find uranium and so on, eventually they're going to go after the professors and say, what kind of geologists are you letting out? So ultimately, they're responsible for the people they're putting out. So it was in their interest to have merit behind our education. Welcome to Sweat the Technique. I'm Doug Lamov, and this is a podcast from a bunch of veteran educators all about how to apply the lessons we learned from the school building outside of school to parenting, hobbies, and the professional world. Today, my guest is Ilya V. Boinovich. He's a professor of geology at Temple University, and his story is a pretty fascinating one. I heard about him after I read a piece that he'd written in Campus Reform, an online magazine, in which he discussed what it was like to see posters on campus encouraging students to get more interested in socialism and the Socialist Club. Professor Boinovich grew up in the Ukraine under Soviet rule, and he talks about the incredible lack of meritocracy and lack of freedom under Soviet rule, under socialist rule, but also interestingly how the education system was a bit of an anomaly to that and how incredibly meritocratic and intense the education system was and how grateful he is to his professors for preparing him so rigorously and maybe even how the then Soviet Union saw scientific preparation as a form of geopolitical competitive advantage. Their school system had to be the best for them to succeed and compete against the West. And so there's some interesting lessons in there for us today on campuses that are increasingly less meritocratic, less competitive, and more open to a version of government that includes socialism. Hope you enjoy the conversation. So Ilya, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really excited for the conversation. Thank you for having me. So I was struck by the piece that you wrote in Campus Reform. You described walking across campus and seeing a flyer uh, encouraging students to, well, maybe not join the socialist revolution, but encouraging their interest in socialism. And it awakened for you memories of you grew up in uh, Sovietized Ukraine. I'm wondering if you could start us off by just talking a little bit about what life was like under Soviet-run Ukraine and what might Americans who are too young to remember it be surprised by. Uh, so it's safe to say you're not as nostalgic for that time period as they are. Well, I grew up at the times when they sort of stopped most of the repressions and gulags of the 30s and then post-war in the 50s. So if you compare to those times, you can say oh, it was a bright childhood. Obviously, it was much harder for our parents to make ends meet. We couldn't afford a car. Everybody was more or less equally poor, but... You know, we didn't have an active war going on. I think what's happening right now in Europe, it's sort of the legacy of the Soviet Union breaking up, basically, and some deeming it a problem and wanted to somehow reconstitute it. You just now describing your, your life growing up, you said everyone was more or less equally poor. Yeah, some people were more equal than others, right? On the scale <laughs> from rich to poor, it was one hundredth of a percent were extremely powerful and rich. The rest were equally poor. So there was equality in a sense that everybody was equally poor. So you've got a sort of deeply unmeritocratic society more broadly. But the interesting thing I think was one of the things that you pointed out was that the school system was highly meritocratic and even competitive. So do you mind describing what school was like under the Soviet Union? And, and I think when some people imagine a highly competitive system, especially in the U.S. now, they might imagine that you think that in a negative way. But you describe yourself as incredibly grateful to your teachers. Yeah, because in high school, even though you know, obviously everything was politicized, but we still had to compete, right? Well, the big goals of the country back then were defense, making sure we have nuclear programs, sending the first men in space and all these things. I think it's like a human condition, no matter what system you're in. At some point to achieve something, even if your top goal is war, you have to have some people, smart enough people to make good tanks. 
I know I'm oversimplified, but some people think that, well, in a free society, there is meritocracy, but in totalitarian society, it's not, it's not really like that. I mean, no matter what their goals are, however we disagree with them, they still are human-based, right? In order to achieve this, it has to be based on merit. So again, we're, most of the people are really, really poor, but within that stratum of society, which was 99%, Everything was based on meritocracy. Do you mind just describing what that felt like in a human sense? You know, what was your schooling experience like? What do you remember from it? Do you mind just talking about some of your recollections of your schooling experience? Sure. Overall, it was definitely a little more rigorous. And I'll tell you one thing. Nowadays, like in modern day post-Soviet states, I don't think it's as rigorous as it was in the Soviet time. So I'm literally comparing current American high school to Soviet high school 35 years ago. As far as merit-based education, it was rather similar in the system that was politically diametrically opposed to the United States. But the overall approach was much more class-based. There was a little bit less on homework, especially college. I mean, if we go to college, we spend 32 plus hours sitting in lecture in university, 32 hours per week sitting in lecture. I mean, here, you know, you're sitting in lecture for eight. So it was much more contact between the teacher and the student. And there were many more subjects. I think we had twice as many subjects every semester than students do here. I'm guessing that a lot of American college students forced to imagine 32 hours in lecture and, you know, highly rigorous content and tough exams. You know, they might imagine this as being like a pressure cooker for you. Uh, but that doesn't really seem to be the way that you look back on it. Yeah, I think they'll appreciate it once they get out. And it's like children and and their parents, most of the time, they say, you know what, dad or mom, you're actually right. I know you're harsh on me, dad, but that prepared me for life. And I think that's the same with teachers. They'll probably appreciate it later. You know, I'm not going to give you extension. It'd be much nicer for me. You're paying money. I can give you extension. I can give you extra point and more and more extension. But that's not going to prepare you for real life. You can't tell your employer three years from now, oh, but professor such and such always gave us an extension. When I tell it to my students now, they definitely get in stress just for my telling them how things were done. And at that time, starting the year before I went to college, men who were full-time college students could postpone or did not go to the army. So if you didn't pass a single pass-fail exam out of nine or 10 a semester, nine or 10 subjects a semester in college, if you fail just one, you're dismissed from the university and as a man, you're straight to the army. That's it. There's no getting around it and so on. So that was another sort of incentive to study for those who didn't want to go. I'd go to the army if I had to, but I just really wanted to study. But you can see how some students really, really struggled. And sometimes you go next semester, where is Ivan? Where is uh, Boris? They're gone. They didn't pass a single one out of nine. That's it. I mean, there are ways around it. I mean, corruption and nepotism. But ultimately, you can just let out a bunch of geologists with diplomas that know nothing. Because if the bridges are falling for engineers or geologists can't find uranium and so on, eventually they're going to go after the professors and say, what kind of geologists are you letting out? So ultimately, they're responsible for the people they're putting out. So it was in their interest to have merit behind our education. Yeah, it's fascinating. You wrote in your piece, when administrators in the Soviet Union wanted to tip the scales on class enrollment, they would make examinations much harder, which I was thinking about, you know, universities now, there's a big conversation about whether they should eliminate SATs and whether there, you know, whether there should be examinations. I'm just wondering what you think of when you hear about universities eliminating the SAT and other merit-based assessments. As long as they explain to me why any of these things other than merit are better, then I can maybe assess the quality. I still don't understand how anything can trump merit. To me, it's like a surgeon. So you're on a surgery table, and behind the door, there are 15 surgeons, assuming they're all sober, they can do their job. And you would say, I know you have the best surgeon to operate on me, but I'd rather have the, and then fill in the blank surgeon. I cannot fill in that blank. It may sound like an extreme example, but ultimately, you know, it's 
bridges that are not falling, things that fly into space. So we want it to be the best people. But if there are people who say, no, marriage should take second place to X, I want to know what that X is. If you have it, we can discuss it. But I still don't understand what that other thing is. Would you say that you're a harder grader than the average professor? And do you ever find yourself having these conversations with students now? I'm a harder tester. How is that? Yeah. I'm a very fair grader, meaning once they get it right, it's right. Once they get it wrong, it's wrong. It's fascinating. I think that you've sort of been describing a paradox of life under the Soviet Union that, you know, the, the great majority of society, 99 point something percent of people, there wasn't a great deal of meritocracy in your daily lives, but the educational system was highly meritocratic. And I think as you intimated, in part because the Soviet Union perceived it to be an imperative from a national security standpoint, right? We have to compete against the world. We have to have the best scientists in the world, that those things were connected. I'm just curious what you think of the war in the Ukraine now and the critical importance importance of, you could argue, that the Ukraine is holding Russia at bay in part due to incredibly brave soldiers, but also HIMARS and Starlink and higher quality technological weapons. Yes, thankfully, thanks to the US and the ability of Ukrainians to learn it quickly. That's key. But all I'm going to say is this, like as far as learning curve, very, very fast because it's been a year and they're holding on. So the ability of Ukrainian soldiers, they basically didn't have an army like eight, nine years ago. The army was almost entirely gone because right, surrounded by friends. What, what does Ukraine need an arm? So people just learn this technology very quickly. That's really key. Right. In fact, that's the U.S. military was skeptical at first about giving a lot of the high tech weapons to the Ukraine because they weren't sure that they'd be able to master them. And very quickly, they turned around and said, oh, yeah, they're able to figure this out really really quickly. They're very fast learners. But it's all the genetics, not to go too far in there, but there was the place in the world where there was always in conflict from time immemorial. So people who live there, like in their genes is defending against outside influence. So people there are sort of wired to be sort of warrior defenders. Not to put too fine a point on it, but if what we see in the Ukraine, the battle of democracy and freedom against a tyrannical state, survival has meant a combination of meritocracy, right? Talented commanders are very quickly identified and given up opportunity in the Ukrainian army and technological knowledge and sophistication. If those two things are the keys to national security in the current era, thinking about what you wrote about maybe students on campus being <laughs> being less committed to meritocracy and education, how confident are you in the U.S. from a national security standpoint? If meritocracy and technological mastery are the keys to national security, how do you feel about the prognosis for the West? It's on decline. Yeah, it's a little more pessimistic. It's on decline, but it's just like with the war, we always find people who are willing to fight and defend this country. The Revolutionary War, it only needed one third of the people for the revolution, right? Because about a third were probably with the king of England, a third were just sort of wavering. So it only needed really one third. So whenever things happen, somehow we still find people who rise up to the point. But nowadays, it's all technological with AI and all the other aspects coming uh, to the front. I think that part may be important. So all we need to do is just make sure we're competitive. And it doesn't always have to be an arms race, right? Even in peaceful time, just sort of healthy competition. We just, I think, want to be competitive. So to be competitive, I think meritocracy is the way to go. When I choose students, so you only get 10 students to pick. I pick the 10 smartest students to do whatever project in my grant proposal. But they want you to tell them how you will be selecting students for your project before they give you tax-funded money. National Science Foundation needs nowadays a much longer statement, exactly what types of students you're going to be preferring. And if the answer isn't, I'm going to choose the 10 best students, what are you supposed to say to secure grant funding? I just have to choose based on something other than merit. And I just don't know how that makes 
things better. Or, you know, all of a sudden, mining and mining expertise is critical to national security because your ability to find rare elements that are critical to technological tools, right? One of the ways that I think China's strategy for global domination is we'll be the best at mining and the best at mining engineering, and we'll go out to Latin America and Africa and we'll fund massive projects that are beneficial to them. And they'll fund those projects, which are beneficial to the countries. And then the countries will be in debt to China financially for the projects. And then they're in China's sphere of influence. I think that like geological expertise is part of their strategy for geopolitical domination. And I don't think most people in the US have quite connected the dots on the national secure the national security relevance of geological expertise, right? Sure, sure. Just imagine five minutes without your iPhone or you can't see the display. That's rare earth elements. So the Stone Age hasn't ended. We either grow things or we mine them, right? So but good luck. Like get a thousand students coming into college and see how many of them want to be a petroleum geologist. They almost think of it you're like a villain almost. Oh, you're the guy that looks for fossil fuels. Well, let's open the conversation. Like when you plug in the Tesla, forget about the gigantic, enormous lithium phosphate iron battery that's in there. Just think of where that power is coming from. When you plug it in, where is it coming from? It's magical. <laughs> uh, probably not a nuclear station. They're burning, like in Philadelphia area, like 80% is probably burning coal somewhere. So um, that's what I'm saying. Like, as long as people know how things work, you know, go for it. But uh, at some point, somebody still has to look for resources. Again, Chinese are in Africa and in the Caribbean, South America, even when we're preparing things for a wind turbine. So to kind of bring it back to where we started, the students who are romanticizing the political aspects of the Soviet Union, socialism, hopefully we can see clearly that they have that wrong. But really what arguably the useful thing to romanticize about that era was the clarity and rigor of science programs and the meritocracy implicit in the science programs then. And that ironically, it seems like part of what you're observing on campus is that students have things a little bit backwards, right? <laughs> They're pining away for the things that were destructive and dismissive of the things that maybe are critically important these days. Yeah, and I guess that was the whole point of it. It's almost like one of the few things that were good, which I think, again, are human endeavors, like to rely on merit, because eventually you realize even if your goals are nefarious or some of the things, you still need merit to get there, right? Even if you're making dynamite solely for the purpose of blowing things up, you still need it to be smart to put it together. That's all I'm saying. So meritocracy always won out. And I think it's like 48% now of students sympathizing with the idea they wanted to try socialism here. But the only thing that actually did work really well, they want to not have there. So this is going to be even worse because you're taking all the bad things and whatever good there was, you're trying to get rid of even that good. That's all I'm saying. There's still a few places, Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea. Go to North Korea, live there, not as like a student for a vacation. Live there for three years, come back, and at least then I can discuss it. Sort of, I can compare Soviet Union. You can say, well, but nowadays North Korea is doing things a little differently. But at least we'll have some sort of a basis for conversation. You're asking me basically to converse with somebody, like a professor conversing with an undergraduate who just read one of the books but never done any practice. And they try to convince me that it's better because of what they read. And I'm telling them, but I've lived there. And you know, I've talked to students here on campus and they never want to discuss it. Well, none of them actually live there. And they usually just sort of go like Sweden. They always mention Sweden or Finland or something. Yeah, you have this beautiful line in your piece, the reality is that experimenting with socialism in another country is a privilege that only free societies can provide. No one back in the Soviet Union or currently in Venezuela can decide to try out the U.S. lifestyle for even a month. Yeah, like back when I was growing up, we couldn't just say, okay, next month we're going to have three cars and then we're going to have... A 
10 times our salary and we're going to go on vacation to Crimea and then let's live like USA for the next three months. And we go, okay, let's do it. Can't do it. But you can do it here. You can say, for the next three months, I want to live like a socialist. I can actually tell them for free exactly what they need to do. Maybe like a line in the store would be difficult. Or you can stand outside the store for like an hour, then go in, pick up a can of kelp and leave. That would be very close. So I can actually lead a person through what they need to do for the next three months to feel like they're in, under socialism. So it sort of can be mimicked. They're not perfectly, but you can sort of do it, right? Like don't drive your car, take public transportation. But what I'm saying is it's easy to do socialist simulation here. You could not do capitalist simulation there. It doesn't work the opposite way. And then people don't realize it. Like some students would start argue with me. And I think I only did it once or twice because you got to be careful these days because they'll be complaining. But I think one time during old days when students weren't as sensitive, I was talking about it, how things were in the Soviet Union. And they said, well, but I read in the book and it was all good can we at least discuss it and then when they started putting their point together i just basically told them to shut up and leave and they're like what do you mean shut up and leave i said can you please shut up and leave the room and they're like excuse me what are you saying and i said i just told you exactly what our teacher would have done if you were arguing with me they would throw you out of the room because you were either interrupting or you weren't saying something that they wanted to hear on a political thing with science, there is no such thing, obviously. But once you get into social thing, the teacher would kick you out. In other words, the dissent that you're showing right now, you would never have been able to express under the Soviet Union. Exactly. Professor Bunyevich, thank you very much for your spending the time talking with me today. I really appreciate it. It's a, it's a great history lesson for me and hopefully for listeners as well. well thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Thought-provoking conversation with Dr. Boinovich there, much like his piece, which is in Campus Reform. Hope you enjoyed our conversation. Hope to see you next week on Sweat the Technique.